episode 51 now let's talk about the dk so diabetic ketoacidosis patient characteristics would be young age brittle type 1 diabetes mellitus and it can be the initial manifestations of the diabetes clinical symptoms acute to subacute onset initial it is polydipsia polyuria blood vision weight loss later on there will be altered mentation hyperventilation and abdominal pain for diagnosis you see that glucose is increased that is 300 to 800 mg per deciliter metabolic acidosis bicarbonate level less than 18 milliequivalent per liter increase anion gap and positive serum ketone okay although we can detect the urine ketones also but serum ketone is the best okay now treatment for the treatment you have to give the high flow iv fluids and that is normal saline and then iv insulin and follow and replace the pot potassium also okay so basically this patient presentation suggests the dk from the new onset of the type 1 diabetes mellitus dk was likely triggered by her recent gastrointestinal illness nausea vomiting which exhibited dehydration precipitated ketosis features of this patient's illness consist with dk includes young age okay although type 1 diabetes mellitus is classically associated with the childhood onset one fourth of the new cases are diagnosed in the young adults dk is the second most common initial presentation of the type 1 diabetes mellitus symptoms rapid, on rapid onset of the weight loss polydipsia increased thrust and diffuse abdominal pain occurs possibly from acidosis electrolyte abnormalities impairing the gastrointestinal functions delaying the gastric emptying and causing ileus clinical signs are dehydration evidenced by tachycardia hypotension and hyperventilation compensated for metabolic acidosis are prominent okay now therefore checking finger stick glucose is the appropriate next step in the management this test is the rapid and minimally invasive it can narrow the differential diagnosis and initial treatment for the patient gastrointestinal symptoms and lethargy glucose level of 300 to 800 mg should prompt empiric treatment for dk which is insulin and iv fluids confirmatory testing for the confirmatory testing you check the serum ketones and also arterial blood glass analysis in which you see an anion gap and also metabolic alkalosis now although sorry metabolic acidosis i just said alkalosis okay although the infection is a common trigger for dk blood glucose measurement should be performed first because it can rapidly confirm the presumptive diagnosis and guided management okay abdominal pain hypotension vomiting can be seen in primarily adrenal insufficiency diagnosed via cosentropin stimulation test however adrenal insufficiency is unlike to explain polyuria and hyperventilation moreover it is associated with hypoglycemia assessing finger stick glucose testing is more optimal approach for narrowing the diagnosis severe upper gastrointestinal bleeding and mesenteric ischemia can cause acute abdominal pain and hypotension may be detected on the ct scan of the abdomen and the endoscopy neither conditions explains this patient's polyuria hyperventilations and a young age and the absence of associated risk factors such as excessive alcohol intake or atrial fibrillations make either of these diagnoses unlikely now although salicylate poisoning detectable on the urine toxicology screening may lead to abdominal pain lethargy nausea associated symptoms of tinnitus vertigo are absent in this patient moreover her two weeks of the program of polydipsia and weight loss points to diabetes mellitus okay now let's talk about the next thing which is condition that alters the thyroid binding globulins so what are the things which increases the thyroid binding globulins so there are basically estrogen excess conditions such as ocp pregnancy and hrt hormone replacement therapy 
Estrogenic medications can also be there such as tamoxifen. And last one is the acute hepatitis. So in acute hepatitis, you see that um, this thyroid binding globulin increases. Next is the thyroid binding globulin decreases with androgenic hormones. Next is high dose glucocorticoid and hypercortisolism. Hypoproteinemia such as nephrotic syndrome and starving because it's a protein only. And then the chronic liver disease. So acute hepatitis causes increase in the TBG and chronic liver disease causes decrease in the TBG. Okay. So basically this patient has an elevated total T4 concentrations but her TSH level was normal suggesting of U thyroid state. Although she has a non-specific symptoms, fatigue, anxiety and her vital signs and thyroid examination are normal in light of a use of an oral contraceptive pills, this patient most likely has normal thyroid functions with estrogen induced increase in the T4 binding globulin. Moreover, 99% of the circulating thyroid hormone pool is bonded to three major transporters. First is the thyroid binding globulins, next one is transthyretine and last one is albumin. Only the free unbounded thyroid hormones are biologically active. Changes in the binding protein levels can affect the total circulating pool of the thyroid hormone. But if the hypothalamic pituitary axis is intact, free thyroid hormone levels are unchanged. Okay. Because that time it can produce more thyroid hormone. Okay. High levels of the estrogen, pregnancy, oral contraceptive pills and hormone replacement therapy increases the level of the thyroid binding globulin by decreasing its catabolism and increasing its synthesis in the liver. As the additional thyroid binding globulin binds more thyroid hormone that is thyroid hormone production increases to maintain the euthyroid state. This patient most likely explained this patient's slightly elevations of the total T4 level. Her free T4 level would be unexpected to be normal. Okay. Now, in patients with the normal hypothalamic pituitary feedback, displacement of the T4 from the binding proteins leads to decrease in the thyroid hormone productions and lower T4 levels, not the higher T4 as seen in this patients with the normal free hormone levels and this medications with uh, this effects includes the salicylate, furosemide and heparin. Okay. Yeah. Graves disease causes hypothyroidism due to stimulation of the TSH receptors by thyrotropin receptors antibodies. However, pituitary TSH secretions is suppressed and thyroid glands is palpably enlarged. In patients with TSH secreting pituitary adenoma, TSH is typically elevated, but in this patient, the TSH was normal. Okay. Now, and they will also present with a mass effect such as headache. Pregnancy can increase the thyroid binding globulin levels, but is less likely in this patient because the patient was using OCP. Resistant to the thyroid hormone is a rare inheritance disorders caused by defect in the thyroid hormone receptors. Patients can have elevated T4 levels with normal or increased TSH, but most have a coiter and this condition is usually apparent in childhood. So basically, estrogen has increased level of the T4 binding globulin. This effect is seen in pregnancy as well and also the patient with OCP and the menopausal estrogen replacement. Thyroid hormone levels are elevated, but the patient with normal hypothalamic pituitary axis maintain a euthyroid stage and normal TSH level. Okay, now let's talk about progressive therapeutic intensification in type 2 diabetes mellitus. Okay, so the, so the first drug which you prefer is metformin, preferred initial therapy. And then if it is not controlled, then along with metformin, you have to add oral anti-diabetic agent and also GLP-1 analog or basal insulin. Okay, so either you can add any oral anti-diabetic agent or GLP-1 analog 
or basal insulin okay so this uh, ultimately concludes to basal bolus insulin therapy now hemoglobin a1c reflects average blood glucose level over the lifespan of hemoglobin about 3 months okay a1c is uh, influenced by both fasting and postprandial glucose concentration and is using estimated overall glycemic control in this patient with diabetes mellitus who targeted a1c should be less than 7% in most patients very high a1c that is more than 10% suggests significant hyperglycemia throughout the day whereas lesser abnormalities are often due to elevations only in the postprandial glucose level this patient hemoglobin a1c is elevated despite an acceptable morning fasting glucose within the target limit that is 80 to 130 in associations with her markedly elevated random glucose that is 290 this suggests that the patient is experiencing frequent postprandial hyperglycemia leading to impaired overall glycemic control improving the management in this patient will require better control of the postprandial glucose without inducing fasting hypoglycemia okay so we have to give the postprandial uh, we have to do the postprandial glucose control by giving the insulin prior to just prior to that okay like, like the medication just prior to that okay so this can be achieved with the help of basal bolus regimen where we are maintaining a basal thing and bolus whenever someone is eating before that so continue the long acting basal insulin that is insulin glargin to control the baseline glucose and also add a short acting meal time insulin that is the insulin aspart or lispro all this thing okay to control the postprandial glucose now autoimmune pancreatitis can cause diabetes due to destructions of the beta cells however the patients typically have recurrent abdominal pain and symptoms of biliary dysfunction such as obstructive joinders and often have frequent and severe hyperglycemia due to loss of the glucagon producing alpha cells next is the dawn phenomena is early morning hyperglycemia surge due to diurnal increase in the growth hormone and cortisol secretions so basically during night there is increase in the growth hormone and cortisol secretions which causes excess glucose in the morning and you see that there is early morning hyperglycemia it causes elevation in the fasting hyperglycemia not the postprandial this patient fasting glucose is well controlled suggesting an adequate basal insulin dose increase the dose would likely cause the fasting hypoglycemia without significantly improving the overall control next is insulin neutralizing antibody can cause very high insulin dose requirement typically results in both fasting and non-fasting hyperglycemia these antibodies were commonly seen in the patient with the past where we were using this bovine and porcelain insulin but are rare with the recombinant insulin analogs okay now let's talk about the thyrotoxicosis with normal or increased uh, radioactive iodine uptake so the conditions are grave disease toxic multinodular goiter and toxic nodules so in these three conditions there is increase or normal radioactive iodine uptake along with thyrotoxicosis and the others are thyrotoxicosis with reduced radioactive iodine uptake these conditions are painless that is silent thyroiditis or subacute decuvarian thyroiditis amiodaron induced thyroiditis an excessive dose serpent uh, serpentitious intake of the levothyroxine and also stromavirai and iodine induced and also there is extensive thyroid cancer metastasis so yeah well, let me tell you one more time the thyrotoxicosis with decreased radioactive iodine condition uh, iodine uptake are first is painless thyroiditis second is the subacute decubitant thyroiditis amiodarone induced thyroiditis 
excessive doses of levothyroxine, stromavirai, iodine induced, and uh, extensive thyroid cancer metastasis. So basically, this patient has primary hyperparathyroidism that is elevated T4 and suppressed TSH with a sign of thyrotoxicosis including tachycardia, anxiety, and weight loss. Primary hyperthyroidism can result from either overproduction of the thyroid hormone such as Graves' disease or toxic nodular goiter or release of preformed thyroid hormone, painless thyroiditis and subacute decurrent thyroiditis. These etiologies can be distinguished with radioactive iodine uptake scintigraphy which will be increased in case of hormone producing and low or undetectable in case of pre-released hormone okay or preformed hormone release. In this patient, the low radioactive iodine uptake and non-tender goiter are most consistent with painless thyroiditis. Painless thyroiditis is associated with thyroid peroxidase autoantibodies and is considered a variant of chronic thi lymphocytic thyroiditis that is Hashimoto and it is similar to the postpartum thyroiditis but by definition excludes the patients within a year of pregnancy. Following a self-limiting hyperthyroid phase, patients often develop hypothyroid phase which may persist or return to a euthyroid stage later on. Painless thyroiditis does not require any specific treatment however as the hypothyroidism causes adrenergic overstimulation so we can pre prescribe them beta blockers okay to control the symptoms especially the palpitation and tremulousness tremors now alprazolam is benzodiazepine and it's used for short-term treatment of anxiety in this patients blocking the effects of the adrenergic hyperstimulation will reverse their her symptoms therefore we don't have to give them alprazolam we can only give them beta blocker levothyroxine is required for the subset of the patients who have significant hypothyroidism not the hyper methimazole works primarily by decreasing the thyroid hormone production in case of radioactive iodine causing uh, caused causes radiation induced destructions of the thyroid follicular cell as a result this treatment are used for thyrotoxicosis due to thyroid hormone overproduction not because of excess release prednisone is used for the treatment of thyroid pain in the patient with acute decurrent thyroiditis who do not respond to NSAID although Subacute thyroiditis would also be associated with a low radioactive iodine uptake. It present with a painful tender thyroid and is typically preceded by an upper respiratory tract infections, prednisone in some patients with amiodaron uh, are also used in some patients with amiodaron induced thyrotoxicosis. So drug induced thyrotoxicosis treatment can be prednisone as well. Okay, now let's talk about the hypoglycemia in insulin therapy. So the risk factors are long-standing type 1 diabetes, pancreatogenic diabetes and manifestations are mild to moderate neurogenic symptoms such as anxiety, tremors, palpitation and sweating, severe neuroglycopenic symptoms, confusion, seizures and loss of consciousness. Management strategies are curry the patients regarding the hypoglycemic symptoms and individualize the glycemic targets flexible insulin dosing regime and also the emergency glucagon kit. So this patient has a good glycemic control on multiple dose insulin regime but experiences loss of control after a severe episode of hypoglycemia. Patients with a diminished glucagon response such as those with pancreatogenic diabetes, chronic pancreatitis with fibrosis of isolate cells, both alpha and beta, okay, can develop rapid and severe hypoglycemia with a little warning only. Such episodes can lead to confusion, seizures and loss of consciousness and can be fatal. Okay, even mild hypoglycemia can be distinguished due to associated autonomic activations such as the anxiety, tremors, palpitation and sweating. Frequent and severe hypoglycemia 
can encourage behavioral changes to prevent the recurrence such as uh, increased caloric intake uh, leading to weight loss or reduce adherence to insulin ma- management in the light of this it helps to ask the patient in a non-judgmental manner about the behavioral changes of reducing the insulin dose they might be taking to avoid the hypoglycemia they might be taking low insulin to avoid the hypoglycemia management strategies includes less stringent glycemic target and flexible insulin regime and also prescribing the emergency glucocorticoid glucagon kit okay so you have to ask the patient some people who have experienced frighteningly low blood glucose often reduces their insulin dose do you think this is happening with you so we have to ask the patient that way okay okay now let's talk about the clinical suspicion of L- acromegaly so if you have a patient who is presenting with the clinical features of acromegaly the first thing which you are supposed to do is insulin like growth factor 1 level if the level are normal then you rule out acromegaly it is not acromegaly and if the levels are elevated then you have to do oral glucose suppression test okay on oral glucose suppression test if you see that adequate growth hormone suppression is there then you rule out acromegaly again but if you see that inadequate glucose uh, growth hormone suppression is there then you go for mri of brain if you see a pituitary mass then you have to surgically remove it versus the medical management surgery is to be done first okay next is the normal if you see normal pituitary then evaluate for any extra pituitary tumor causing the acromegaly or any sort of extra pituitary masses such as the ectopic growth hormone or growth hormone releasing hormone secreting tumors that is the hypothalamus one okay so this patient's presentation with coarse facial features and arthralgias uncontrollable hypertension and rolling and enlarging digits carpet tunnel syndromes are consistent with acromegaly this conditions is caused by excessive secretions of growth hormones usually due to a pituitary somatotrophin adenomas other common features includes malocclusions of the jaw and the hyperhidrosis and heart failure and also macroglossia focal mass effect symptoms such as headache and visual field effects growth hormone stimulates hepatic insulin growth factor 1 secretions which is responsible for most of the clinical manifestations of acromegaly insulin like growth factor 1 levels in acromegaly are consistently elevated throughout the day in contrast the growth hormone levels can fluctuate widely and cannot be used alone to diagnose the acromegaly as a result the insulin like growth factor 1 is preferred initial test however insulin like growth factor 1 level decreases with age and require interpretation according to the age ad- adjusted norms okay patients with elevated insulin like growth factor 1 should allows to undergo the confirmatory test with the help of oral glucose suppression test in normal individual the administrations of the glucose rapidly suppresses the growth hormone however in acromegaly the growth hormone is not suppressed and may paradoxically increases okay once the acromegaly is confirmed with the glucose suppression test the patient should have an mri of the brain to identify the pituitary mass however inc- incidental pituitary lesions are common in normal patients and can be misleaded in the diagnostic assessing okay as a general rule in endocrinology imaging is performed after the biochemical diagnosis is made okay next is the thyrotropin releasing hormone uh, administrations suppress the growth hormone secretions in normal individual but it stimulates the secretions in many patients with acromegaly however this test is having having a poor sensitivity and is not routinely performed so the first test which you are supposed to do is growth insulin like growth factor 1 then you are supposed to do oral glucose suppression test and the last one is mri 
If there is a pituitary mass, then do surgery. And if a normal pituitary is there, then rule out the extra pituitary causes of acromegaly. So yeah, this is it for this lecture. Thank you so much for listening.